believe. beautiful little degenerates and welcome to the very last episode of season three of Tales of Taboo. Three whole seasons. I cannot believe it. Time truly does fly when you're having fun and also when you're off your medication. (laughs) For anyone who is just joining us or who wants to hear me say it one last time, my name is Allie Weiss. I'm a Z-list native New York performer, writer, and on-air host known for my big eyebrows, big opinions, and title as the self-proclaimed princess of taboo. This title was given to me, by me, because of my obsession with elusive subcultures, the road less traveled, and all topics, people, ideas, and experiences that are outside the bounds of what is considered normal or even socially acceptable. And this show, Tales of Taboo, reflects those values. Normally, each episode is composed of anonymous confessions submitted by a global audience, letting me and my listeners in on a firsthand look at uncommon or less talked about corners of humanity from those who have experienced it directly. However, every once in a while, like today, I'll do a one-on-one interview with someone I meet in my various strange adventures who in some way, shape, or form has fearlessly lived an unconventional life. My hope in doing these one-on-one interviews is to inspire everyone listening, but also encourage more of you to become anonymous confessors without fear of judgment, whether that is from society or yourself. So today's special guest is the most interesting man you've never heard of. His name is Adrian Dannett. According to Adrian's professional bios, quote, Adrian Dannett has been, very occasionally, an actor, editor, curator, writer, artist, and obituarist. He was once described by Guy Debord, uh, Ali's note, that is a Marxist philosopher, as a hero journalist, Ali's note, delivered sarcastically, and Entertainment Weekly called him an irritating Brit twit. Caroline Duffy, several decades ago, said he was a name to look out for in the future. In simple terms, Adrian is the truest definition of a bon vivant. This is Ali talking again now, not his professional bio. Um, A bon vivant, a collector of experiences and art and people, and perhaps the only person on planet Earth who is even more obsessed with stranger danger than me. I met Adrian two years ago after stumbling into a showing of his personal art collection at a gallery on the Lower East Side. Right away, I noticed he was this fascinating mix of dapper and like kind of disheveled. (laughs) He was extremely English and he had zero qualms about marching up to me, nitpicking my outfit and immediately testing the bounds of my sense of humor. And we engaged in what his fellow Englishmen would call a battle of the wits or as they now say on Love Island, banter. Very clear either way that we were destined to be friends. And the icing on the cake was when we exchanged information 
he informed me that he had no cell phone. So the only way I would be able to get in touch with him was via email, potentially at the speed of three to five business days. <laughs> Occasionally, people are known to um, scribble urgent messages on the seat of his bike. A week or so later, Adrian invited me to this like really vague dinner party he was hosting for young people in film, uh, which I found out a guy I was talking to on an app was also invited to. So get this. We, two strangers, decided to have our first date at this dinner party in a stranger's home, which was not Adrian's home, and located directly above the very infamous Box nightclub. And at this dinner party, we were surrounded by other strangers, none of whom knew each other. (laughs) And the whole thing was hosted by a relative stranger because neither of us knew Adrian that well. Hands down, top five first dates of my life, just because of the novelty of the whole thing. You know, honestly, probably top five experience as a whole. It was iconic. That guy that I saw and I didn't last very long, but my unconventional friendship with Adrian did. And since then, we've gone to a variety of fun events at which he knows literally everyone and about half of them recognize him in return. Um, As you'll hear in our interview, Adrian is hilarious. He's a brilliant writer, a free thinker, and an authentic eccentric. Meeting him restored my faith that true algorithm-free individualism still exists, and I hope that you're all as obsessed with him as I am. And without further ado, for the last time of season three, this is Tales of Taboo. She made a noise. I did, did you make hear? a noise. I lost. You should win you a prize totally for that. Lost. What do I get? <laughs> I don't know. We should have put something on the table I got table my coffee. Before. I already got a coffee. World's best boss. Have you ever been a boss in your life? A boss? Meaning like employees, not like a boss-ass bitch. Meaning like, like, have you ever had to boss people around? Oh, like people you can fire. I'd yeah. love to do that. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. I've been fired many times. Well, I mean, a handful of jobs I ever had, I was always fired. But I don't think I've ever been in a position of responsibility of any sort, let alone having people I could get rid of. What is that wrong? I was a breakfast waiter um, in London for a long time uh, in a very, very long corridored hotel, the Royal Northern. Chic. Lovely, where I'd uh, knock on the door in the morning, hoping to see naked ladies. Right, hoping to interrupt coitus. Oh, you did. No, I saw many naked ladies, but they were completely the wrong sort of naked lady. Oh, not the ideal body type. It's not what an 18-year-old wanted to be seeing. (laughs) Right. I was told. Uh, octagonarian Scandinavian <laughs> tourists in one of the worst hotels in London. And it is true that the man who worked there, who was a kind of French hippie, uh, sort of drug dealer French hippie, uh, he didn't speak any English. And I was his kind of boss, I guess, even he, though he was maybe 10 years older than me. So you I were, probably could have got him fired you, if I'd really tried. Yeah, but that would have made your job significantly less interesting. Having a... It would have been awful because the great thing about him was he explained what you did. The first day that I was there, well, he spoke in French. This is how I learned to speak French because oh, I was from trapped a, from for a drug a year. dealer, a French from drug a, dealer. Well, from a, like a pot dealer. From He lived in Goa in India for a long time. And he would send packages to London and try and get me to pick them up. Uh, but he didn't speak any English at all. So I had to speak French. And I learned French in the middle of this horrible hotel in central London. But the really wonderful thing he explained at the beginning was you could jam the elevator 
at a certain floor. And you could push all the trolleys, which had all the breakfast that you'd gone around collecting in the corridors, you could just push them into the elevator shaft and they would fall like 15 floors and make the most unbelievable noise, this <laughs> incredible explosion. But you could only do it like once every three weeks because otherwise the elevator shaft filled up with these, with broken all the, dishes. with broken dishes and, because otherwise we had to wash up the damn things. So the thing to do was just push the trolleys into the elevator shaft and the day he showed, Pierre, Pierre Jean, the day he showed me that, it was absolute revelation. Okay, let me do my introduction, which is actually very difficult to do this week because normally, actually, here's what I will say. I have actually always found it curious that people start conversations with new people saying, what do you do for a living? And you write in your own obituary, in your book of obituaries, that you recoil in horror from this question, um, which I myself saw firsthand when I made the mistake of asking you that yes, recently. Shame on you. But uh, be shame on you. before I start reading the various quotes attempting to describe you on the internet, how would you describe yourself? Hmm. Well, definitely doomed rather than famous, as the title of my book is Doomed and Famous. I think, you know, what I like to say is when I meet people, especially in America, is I like to say I'm a failure because it's really good. It gets straight to the point. And I think it's very um, helpful to clear the ground. And also, you don't hear it that often at American cocktail oh, parties. Oh, no, nobody wants to call it's themselves. Not, it's not a standard thing. But then, if you consider yourself a failure and introduce yourself as such, uh, I mean, there's a whole art of failureology, as we call it, the whole world of, of, of um, failure and the acknowledgement of failure. Then you can say that you are actually relatively successful at being a failure. Um, and so you can – and I often do say that for someone who doesn't do anything, I'm always surprisingly busy. So uh, that's a strange thing. To, I mean, I think once you set yourself up as someone who doesn't do anything and who has essentially failed, who has got to 60, brushing 60, edging. Not yet. Yeah, Not yet. edging, edging 60, right, right. brushing, edging 60, and has never fired anybody from any kind of job, including breakfast waitering. <laughs> Or has never had a job. Well, no, I did have no, some No, that's jobs. not true. That's true. I've had about three jobs, and I was actually fired from all of them, most horribly from the BBC, which was the most brutal thing ever. How oh, can we get into that? As a BBC producer. Um, but, uh, yeah, failed, ne'er-do-well. Well, I think it's Nothing. a very, like, arresting um, standpoint to take because especially in a place like New York City, people are just trying to gas themselves up constantly. People oversell who they are and what they do. So for someone like you to come in and say, I don't do much of anything at all, and then you take a quick Google and you realize that's not true, I think that's immediately it makes you interesting. Well, it's so interesting that you say take a quick Google because that is the other thing uh, is that all that has just changed the whole game because why do you have to bother laboriously talking to people about yourself? They can just dial right. you up. You should give so them a QR more, code, right? Which is so much more fun, you know. <laughs> and I am obsessed with what people do, of course. And I just wish there was a way that, because half the time you spend at parties talking to people, you know, is wasted. Like, oh, you go, yeah. These people are rubbish. I mean, you can right, usually tell. Yeah, you can usually tell right at the beginning, okay, those people are rubbish. We're not going to bother with them. These ones look kind of good. But then even so, you end up getting stuck in discussions of 
marketing and branding. And, horrendous. You know, horrendous. Anybody who works in branding, run in the opposite direction. I did. I was at a cocktail party in Paris and with my son, and I suppose who must have been about 18 or something. And um, we met this woman and she explained she did luxury. I, the way that they always say with branding, it's very high end luxury right, brand. Right, because they, they, they don't to, want you to think nobody that ever says it's low end. Right, I'm right. doing really bad low end branding. Some of the crappiest branding ever. And so she said, I'm doing high-end luxury branding. And my son said very innocently, oh, that's the one thing that my father said I wasn't allowed to do in life. And she looked horrified. And I had to quickly say, no, 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 that was cattle branding. Or, you know, quickly pretend it was. That was Wyoming. It's a totally different thing. I'm a, you want to know something but, ironic, though? The people who work in high-end branding with, like, you know, the skincare or the luxury hotels or whatever get paid shit. It's the people who work they? for the big corporations like the Chick-fil-A's, the McDonald's, the yes. uh, the the mass brands that, that we cultured people don't want to associate with. Those are the people who are raking in cash. Raking I bet in they cash. are. Yeah. That's where the budget is. Mm. Um, luxury branding. Uh, anyway, yeah, so I've never done luxury branding and I've <coughs> never done... You'd be quite good at it. I well, feel actually, like I really did take a group ideas. of people round from Danone Yogurts, which is a gigantic uh, French industrial food complex. I did take it sounds them so round much better when you say Danone Yogurts. Danone Yogurt. That's oh, do you know that? Yeah, of course. In America? We have them here. What yeah. did you call it? Danone. Danone. <laughs> Danone Yogurt. Danone. Danone Yogurt. Which is almost my name, Danette. Uh, anyway, that was almost luxury branding. And I took these people round. New York. And I was once offered a job to be the marketing director for French Connection, which is a clothing oh, store yeah. in what? Britain. How? How? Because I met the fabulous man. Oh, I loved that man. And he produced Lock, Stock, and Smoking Barrel. What is his name? He was the founder of French Connection. And I met him at a drinks party. And then he rang me the next day, Stephen Marks. And he rang me the next day and said, I've got a job for you. Come in right now. And so I headed in there and he said, I want you to be head of marketing for French Connection. And I said, but I've never done anything yeah, like that. what? And he said, it's perfect. Anyway, it all went horribly wrong. Did you accept the job? No, I didn't accept the job. I like a total fool. And then everything went horribly wrong with his wife, Nicole Fari, who was also a fashion designer. Uh, anyway, I won't go into that because that's a shameful story. But anyway, so I failed. So this is the way that the internet describes you, just based on uh, the internet. I the don't internet. think that's the right term. Well, it is. It's the internet. It's the is people. Is it called the, the internet? People on the internet. The internet summarizes whatever I can find in this black mirror. Critic, curator, sometime actor, one-time flash art editor, and full-time bon vivant writer and independent art historian, raconteur, and jaunty boulevardier, which means man about town. You were also described as a heroic journalist, also an irritating animated Brit twit. And um, this is the one that that really got me. I think this was a review for your book. Adrian Dannett is an unusual character and a collector of other unusual characters. You cannot mention a painter, a writer, or a society figure from about 1600 AD to the present day without him knowing something about them or their circle. This makes him a delightful conversationalist, full of juicy gossip and witty insights into French, English, and American cultural oddballs. Um, is that our friend Hugo Guinness? I think that is. Yeah? Yeah, well, Hugo's always right about everything. <laughs> 
He's, um, he's never been wrong. I would point out that the hero journalist isn't quite right. It's ce héros journaliste. Oh, did uh, I French, translate right? it? In no, no, no. Wrongly? It's sort of right, but it actually is a very, um, it's a sort of critical, ironic term. Because Guy Debord, the founder of the revolutionary Situationist International, mm -hmm. was denouncing me um, for something that I'd written about him. So it's an ironic, it's a sort of attack on me. Oh, I would Even say. better. And I, I have to say, I'm very, I mean, Guy Debord was a notorious troublemaker um, throughout his life and involved in every sort of revolutionary plot and uh, mischief. And I was denounced by him and also by Malcolm McLaren, the notorious um, manager of the Sex Pistols, who called me a notoriously unworthy provocateur. <laughs> the man himself, Malcolm McLaren, called me that. And I, ha I have it on a fax which was about when he was going to do an exhibition in North Korea, in Pyongyang. Anyway, it all went... What did he you do to warrant I, that label? I revealed that he was planning to do an exhibition in oh. Pyongyang, in North Korea. And uh, his wife is South Korean and, and took great umbrage, mm. huge umbrage. And um, anyway, he denounced me in a fax. So that was kind of exciting. That's pretty ironic. To be denounced as a provocateur by two of the great provocateurs of the 20th century. That's all I need to do, really. I can retire. Doesn't, that, doesn't matter that you haven't achieved mainstream fame, you know? That's all the uh Well, it's funny you, you should say that. It does matter. It matters a great deal. And it, it, and it is punishing. Because I always think of alternative um, lives, you know. And when I was just in Los Angeles, I was up in the Hollywood Hills. And I was thinking... Would there be anything better than being like a film star living in Los Angeles? Probably not. Well, and how sad that one, the fact that one's never been a rock star or never been a movie star is so unutterably, painfully awful. How do we cope with that? I will say that for somebody in your position who thrives off of people, if you achieve that level of fame, you can't have that anymore. It's the sacrifice that you have to make. You become increasingly adored, but you lose your ability to have authentic connections with just about anybody, which is your specialty. That is actually very true. And I think what I really like about the internet, the one thing that is good about it is it makes me feel better about never having become a proper famous person. Because nowadays, fame is so horrendous. depressing. It and, is. It's horrendous. And you get attacked on the street with people complaining. And, and my loathing of those little portable telephones that everybody has, and which mm -hmm. I don't have. You have to have a photograph taken with these bloody people yeah. the whole time. It's so the not... whole thing has been so debased. But I wish that, because I would like to go back and say, I was mainstream famous. This is the whole central tragedy in my life, that when I was a teenager, I was mainstream famous, and I was chased down the street, and I had to give autographs to people, and I had to have a security person moving crowds away. Well, this away. is exactly where so I what want is to So what is so interesting is why I then failed, having had that, to have fame in, say, that it was all my parents' fault, I have to say this. Everything parents, is always our parents' it, fault. Totally my always. parents' fault. Because they got this totally, I got myself this part on this children's television program by writing off to the newspaper, because there was an advert in the newspaper saying they were looking for someone. I went through the labor of getting this bloody job. And then my parents chose some crappy agent to represent me, who was the worst criminal <laughs> rubbish person ever. Sounds about right. And dead, uh, pleased to say. Uh, and anyway, if, there'd been a, if they'd actually got a proper person, right. I could have had maybe squeezed a decade of like proper 
fame when it was still pleasant and meant something. When did that stop? End of the 90s or something, I guess. I think it was just the invention of not necessarily the iPhone, but um, I think the Instagram iPhone. and social media culture. I think it started with the iPhone, but mm. I think that now... When I, is the iPhone? 2005? Two, no, two, no, I think 2007 or mm. 2008. Yeah. So I could have had 20 years of totally enjoyable fame, instead of which I was lying at home, weeping in bed, <sighs> banging my head on the pillow. Deeply relatable. Yeah. I want to talk about Just William, though, because I, I was not familiar with that show before I met you and read up on you a little bit. But there are these incredible, like, old Hollywood or whatever the British equivalent is, uh, photos of you on Getty Images. And you did achieve this level of fame. So can you tell me a little bit about that show? what the cultural significance was, what your character was like. Can you say yes, the stage? of course. I mean, Just William is a marvelous series of books by a woman called Richmond Crompton, who many people thought was a man because this curious name Richmond, people didn't realize it was a woman. And they were written originally for adults. And they're stories of this very anarchic, naughty, is not quite the right word, anarchic, inventive, um, hyperactive boy who's you. about, well, kind of me, yes, which was sort of total typecasting. And then I saw this advertisement in the newspaper. I was at school and I wrote off a letter and I wrote it in the style of Just William, which was like lots of ink splots and splatters all over it. Um, and then I had a whole series of auditions and then finally, they came to my school, the producers from this television program, London Weekend Television, which was a big uh, TV uh, channel in London. They came to see me in the school play, which was Young Hitler, with me playing Hitler, the young Hitler, because oh. I had a striking resemblance to Hitler. Oh, my When God. I had hair, and I have played Hitler twice, I actually played Hitler for an Israeli artist who is the niece of Charles Saatchi, the great collector. She had an art video in which I was Hitler putting her very Jewish children to bed. And so I, so I was there dressed as Hitler, telling them to get into bed, these little children. So I've regularly played uh, the young Adolf Hitler or even the old Adolf Hitler. And anyway, so my mother, my poor mother, came to the school play and had no idea that I had embarked on trying to get this part on TV. And she had to sit with the producers of this TV station who were weeping with laughter at my abominable performance as Adolf Hitler. And when they saw me hamming it up, trying to be Adolf Hitler, they thought, okay, well, he's obviously the right person for the role. And it was kind of wonderful. It wasn't kind of wonderful. It was wonderful because it was uh, two years, I suppose, in my life. And it was very enjoyable to be famous then. But again, of course, it was a, it was a, um, even then, it's funny, there were sort of unpleasant things about f being famous. So that you did have, you did have hostile, aggressive people saying nasty things. Uh, yeah. but, I mean, nothing like the degree today. But it, I mean, it's always been there, of course, that fame has its, um, uh, what is the word? Um, its dark side. Well, but I people are aggressive. and It's just know. become increasingly dark because back when you were famous, there was like one set of photographers that would chase you and the fans would have to come up to you on the street and ask for an mm. autograph. Whereas now, 
anybody in any sort of position of fame or power is subjected to the opinions of every single person who's on Twitter. And that's why these things that are actually not a big deal in the scope of celebrity scandal blow up to the level that they do, because every single person thinks that they're entitled to an opinion. So the idea of like the culture critic, right? Of course, we still have people in society who are more fit to be a critic than others. But anybody with an Instagram account, anybody with a Twitter account can now be considered a reputable critic, even if they have no experience watching films, listening to music, what have you. And I think that's what scares me about fame and what has gotten in my way of my full pursuits of, as I told you the other day, wanting to be an actor rather than whatever the fuck it is that I'm doing right now. And You're doing a famous podcast. We, it's right here. Ali Weiss's tales, Weiss's tales Weiss's of taboo. Weiss's Ali Weiss's tales of taboo do you like that picture of me i love that picture but Thank your you. hair looks totally different yeah it's it was kind of it was blonde blondish. it was blonde at the time I is it really through. blonde no it's it's much darker than this my hair's like black i look like morticia adams naturally do you yeah i do and uh it's an acquired taste i wanted this was a phase in my life in which i wanted to look more friendly more approachable to match what i perceive to be my personality are you less friendly now um, no, but I scare people really easily. Do you? Yeah. Well, that's because you're very attractive. Thank you. People find that scary. Don't blonde they? women are not nearly as scary, even if they're cute. Do you think? I've known some really scary blonde really? women. Really? I, I haven't. I spent a year blonde and I cannot Did begin you? to tell you how much easier it was for me to just immediately make connections with really? people. Really? Same personality, by the way. I've always been someone who, as you know, I meet strangers right away. Come come into my my aura, my energy, my orbit. Enter my aura. Enter my aura. Yes. Um, but that's why we're so similar, Ali, Exactly. Despite the 50 years between us. No, I know. And it, that's something I noticed right away. But what I was saying about the fame thing is... Um, but I was going to say to you in response yeah. to that, but if you don't look at Instagram or if you've never looked at Facebook, I once looked at Facebook, my daughter's account, using my daughter's account Facebook with, her, with her permission. Perhaps the most toxic. To find the other Adrian Dannett, who is a career criminal in <laughs> Melbourne, actually on the suburbs of Melbourne, in a really frightening suburb of Melbourne. And he's in jail right now. For, I, I, I look him up. I look him up. write to Well, him. you know what? I was writing things for the British Airways in-flight magazine, which is called, not High Times, but High Life. High Times is the one. High Times is, the, is yeah. the marijuana. But this was High Life. High life, like the African music, high life music. Anyway, and I did come up with a great idea that they would fly me, British Airways would fly me to Melbourne. Oh, to the and prison. And I would meet Adrian Dannett, yeah, which would be so amazing. I think that's, you should do that on your, own. find someone, to, you know so many rich people, find someone to sponsor that. You're right, I absolutely should You could in that. two seconds, I think that's brilliant. That's like the premise of an entire screenplay. And he's got a lovely wife who's heavily tattooed. Which I know, and the reason I knew about Facebook? him was I kept well because that's why I had to look on Facebook. I kept getting emails from people saying congratulations, and I was like, congratulations on what? And not having anything to be congratulated on, and they would say your baby, your new baby. I was like, what? <laughs> and then they went, yes, it's on Instagram, but how? No, not on on Facebook. Yeah. But how they could have confused the the career criminal who's twenty five or something? Yeah. And me would be hard to say. When you start growing up in New York City, the cultural epicenter of the entire world, and you grow up with money, mm, I don't know about that. Mm, no. All right. New, I'm spoken like a true New Yorker. Okay. Mm. What about London? I agree. I, that's yes. that's why I All spent right. the other oh, half okay. of my time All there. Right. But when you grow Enough up in the already. city... <laughs> Enough already. <laughs> so, let me finish. Yes, get on with it. I'm Why aren't trying. you more famous? I'm trying to get on with it. Yes. The, the, what I'm trying to say here is that I, I think that... But you're not rich. No. Adrian? 
What I'm trying to say is that, yes, growing up in that position of privilege has absolutely gotten in the way of my ambition and my work ethic. And I think that there's a certain elitism that comes with that when you're like, fucking hell, like when I was born into the exact position that people are trying to ascend to, where do I go from here? That's so true. I was having lunch with my friend Sally Ann Lassen, the famous cartoonist, at her beautiful um, place on Grove Street. Not even on Grove Street. It's called Grove Place, which is the best place, Grove Place, the best place to live in New York. I don't know if you know it. It's a little courtyard right, off with the Grove Street mm-hmm. with the cobblestones and a little gate. I yeah, mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Literally the best place ever. Yeah. And I've always dreamt of living there. Sally Ann is living there right now. I mean, she's renting this place. And over the road from her is this junky woman who's lived there forever because she was given this house by her parents. Yeah. And Sally Ann and I were saying, well, probably this happened. If you've been given the house on yep. Grove Place, yep. which is the best place to live in the world, What would be better than becoming a junkie? Why would you have to do anything? You actually have a quote that I'm happy that you brought up this topic because something that you wrote in your obituary in this book, which really stood out to me, which was, by the precocious age of 23, Danit had already been an actor, editor, writer, and producer, bowing out from the world when most others began. And so my resume definitely was not nearly as accomplished as yours was by the time that I graduated college, but I had amassed so much life experience, some of which was because of my circumstances and some of which was because, as we've discussed, I looked legal from the time that I was 12. So the whole world felt like my oyster. And I was not a a troubled teenager, but I was interested in um, diving headfirst into life's various pleasures. And I was also always very interested in other people and subcultures and places where I probably should not have been hanging out. So by the time I got spat out of my school, which I never graduated from officially, by the way, I still have outstanding credits. Um, when you say school, you mean university. University, the yeah. Secret, the secret university The secret university, California. yeah, Hogwarts, no. Um, but the secret university in California, I, I, I had this overwhelming sensation of like, done everything what what do i do now because yes i was lacking in professional accomplishments but it was like all of the things that people want to use their professional accomplishments to get whether that's access to celebrities or wealth or or popularity it was like i had had all of these things already but you had all that yeah which a lot of which had nothing to do with my parents it was me seeking no, it out had to do those with, as you were telling me when we first met due to you being a very attractive 28 year old woman trapped in a 12 year old girl's body right I, I think that i just felt so burnt out and used up from a really young age, I was like, all of these things that people strive to do throughout their 20s to really get somewhere, I felt like I had already gone you'd already, there. You'd already done it. Yeah. How did you do that? But also you've got, I mean, what's so much, you're not, of course, you're very far from even um, brushing 30, extraordinarily young. So, I mean, it, it, the strange thing is that people nowadays, due, due to the uh, social media, etc., they feel that they, um, you know, that they're old when they're 28, uh, forgetting that probably with life expectancy now, they've got another 60 years in yeah. front of them, which is a strange thing. So you do meet people who are like, oh, no, I've totally failed and I'm 27. And you say, well, you're probably going to live till you're 85. What is your, you know, yeah. what, is, what is the race on for? Except, of course, it's more fun to be famous when you're younger. 
It is. You know, and the optimum age is probably 30. I, I think you give yourself two years. I want to follow the Sharon Stone trajectory. I want yes. to become You've my... You've got to be in crappy B movies. My... Before Maybe you she can did think of your think of your podcast as, as a, a crappy, crappy B movie. movie. That's that's the best advice I as think I've crap, ever. And you could retitle received. it Ali Vices's uh, crappy, crappy B, B, B movie. movie taboo. A hundred percent crappy taboo. But I I think I you know what if I'm being honest with myself I don't think that throughout the duration of my twenties I was ready for a real level of fame. I had really bad mental health issues, some substance issues. I just I just didn't know myself at all. Still don't, but have kind of turned that into my what identity. Does substance issues. I was mean? like drinking You're too a much. Drug I was, oh, I, drink. No, I'm not. A, no, not a drug addict. But I, I really like booze. Yeah, and wine. Um, wine. Oh god, anything. no bourbon. Oh bourbon. Brown liquor. That tells Ooh. you where I was at. Marlboro Reds, brown liquor, Ooh. weed. But good for the voice. Good yeah. for the podcast. Well, that's why voice. I was like howling into the microphone yes. before with, you know, the phlegm coming up. You asked why. Well, the stuff that's that the I was old ingesting. Phlegm from the that's old my 23 year old phlegm. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think Emerging that now, now that I'm comfortable. On the B movie. <laughs> in the movie. That's horrible. The term Trust of me, the 23 year old phlegm. Me, I know. Um, but I, I think that. I, I had to get to where I am now, which is feeling genuinely comfortable with me and all my moving parts um, to be able to really take like public scrutiny. I'm, I'm able to do that now. And I think I will be able to do that more as I go into my 30s um, rather than what I would have been able to take had but I But then you also don't want to, you don't want to lose 25. your looks also. You have to look out for that. Oh, 100%. That well, that's, that's why so... I was telling you, I was walking through the flowers, gotta... not cigarettes garden and I was like, fuck, I can't smoke anymore. I know. It's terrible. But how did how did you deal with with failure. your no. no not failure with with that moment of bowing out from the world when others are just beginning to go into it? What what was kind of happening in your mind at that point? Well, I um I guess I got fired from the BBC. Uh, I managed to steal a lot of records, which I'm still proud of. I have Do you a have lot them? of vinyl, yeah. Oh, I have yeah. a whole stack of Amazing. vinyl from the BBC. I hated the BBC and they hated me equally with a vengeance. It was very bizarre. I'd been working for a fashion magazine. I was actually my background was in fashion journalism. Uh, in a strange, I, I worked for a magazine called L Magazine when it was yeah. launched in Britain in 1985. And as a heterosexual 22-year-old, there was an amazing job working for L. It was being launched. Yeah. And it was a very successful magazine. And then, and that's actually also another thing about fame. That's an interesting thing. Another thing that's gone wrong is that there's no sexual perks to fame nowadays. Yeah. Which is different for a female, maybe, but for a man, that was the whole point of it. Right. For a long time. So if that has been, it's like being an academic, though you wouldn't be an academic if you couldn't have sexual perks, basically. And now those things have been abolished and no longer allowed. The whole thing is there's no point. It goes it. back to social media, though, because so much of the rise to fame is also the rise of exposure on all. Everyone is overexposed now. You are mm. you are hard pressed to find somebody who's genuinely mysterious. And it's it's this, especially with reality television, where people clamor to get onto reality TV shows because it's an easy way to become known quickly. You actually have less sex the more famous you get now. Ugh, and right. so I think what happens is when you get famous the same way that, as I was saying before, had you been more famous, you would have lost your access to this incredible pool of interesting people. When you get famous, you're basically delegated to only having sex with other famous people. Yeah, but that it, could be kind of fun. Though. It could, but I feel like you'd make the rounds pretty quickly. Who's the most famous person you've slept oh, with? Oh, I can't tell you that on this show. But are they very famous? 
Pretty famous. Recognizable for sure. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine was having an affair with, I think it was Mick Jagger, but she'll oh. never reveal. But I mean, a long time ago, 25 years ago in Long Island or something. Yeah. And I would test her on that. And I'm pretty certain it was. A too. lot of famous people are really boring behind the scenes, though. I will tell you that also. And cripplingly insecure. But you know, when they look so good, it's just, I, I'm obsessed with that thing about charisma and, and the aura of the person. And they're not, they don't have that aura because they're famous. They're famous because they have that aura. Well, that's and that like charisma. you. That, that's, that's the a, number one reason why I think you are so criminally under famous. I think you're absolutely right. And you know what is it's a strange that. thing? We, except I'm perhaps not very good at acting, which is the only thing that makes me feel better about this, is that maybe <laughs> I'm not so good at it. Because otherwise, it's so annoying because I continually get people, I'm endlessly stopped. And people go, hold on a minute. I know you. Right. You so know people, everybody. No, but people think these are people who don't know me people think i'm a famous person and it's really annoying because it's like my alternative science fiction parallel life i was meant to be a bloody famous person yeah and people can still see it and so people say oh hold on i know you when i was just in la recently i was continuously being stopped saying hey you're um you're that guy aren't you and I wasn't. Wait, we need to we need to actually tell the story about us meeting. Um, and it's then, not that interesting. No, you just came into the gallery. No, no. It's good about that, your date, though. The, that, the, the, the date, date story is, is very good. good. It's yes. very good. So I was using Hinge at the time, and I had matched with, um, you know, Could we a, put an advert for Hinge. We should this. We should get this episode sponsored Hinge. by Hinge <laughs> for all your needs. Um, and I, I had matched with this guy who was just, you know, handsome, cultured, interesting. Very whatever. handsome. Very handsome. Also French, which is mm. just a lot of bonus points. He's married now, unfortunately. But I told you that. Yeah, you did. You I did. Know. And I immediately called Shannon and I was like, you'll never believe it. And you He's looked married. upset. I like that. You, you had a little tiny recoil. It was I just told you. it yeah. was just fast. You know, know. know. Um, but he and I were bonding over, you know, galleries, what art we had seen recently. And I was telling him, you know, I stumbled into this small gallery on the Lower East Side and I met the strangest, most interesting man who writes obituaries professionally. And he was like, oh, my God, I met him, too. Adrian. And I was like, yeah, Adrian. And he goes, I just got invited to this dinner for young people in film that he's putting together. I went, oh, my God, he invited me to that, too. So we decided our first date was going to be at a dinner party, um, which we later found out Adrian was hosting in a home that was not his own never my own because i can't cook <laughs> it puts me into a tailspin he actually of asked terror. this family to do all the cooking for him and provide all the alcohol and in turn he would bring no a group i think of, i brought a bottle didn't i, I or maybe I, not i don't think or you did i, I think didn't. you just brought a group of um uh, of young strange yes. <laughs> young strange dead but they were all attractive and brilliant <laughs> they like were yourself. they were all they were all quite interesting and so um this man who shall not be named that i met on hinge i know we his just, name yeah you do don't say it no. we decided that we were going to meet for a martini before going to this to make sure that you know he and i were like kosher and we liked each other enough so off we went to the meeting spot and then we walked to this house that was not adrian's and we proceeded to have a first date at a table of a about 15 people. No. Well, yeah, actually, there big. were quite a few people. It, the whole yeah. family was there on top of all it's of your true. deadbeats that you brought. 
And it was probably the greatest first date that I ever had. It was just, I love stranger danger, as you do. And it was the strangeriest, But you never told experience. me that that was a date. No, I there. didn't. No. I thought it was more fun if you just... That was, that's, yeah? that is kind of amazing. And you didn't even find that out from me. No. You found that out through your friend who I sat next to at Film Forum, who just published a book about Nazi billionaires. Yes, David de Jong. And he asked me how Shout I knew David you. David de Jong. And I told him that that anecdote. That's That story is one of my, uh, my prouder ones. I think that one. Very he was awed by you as well. I, I've never introduced you to anyone who hasn't been awed by you. What did he say? Um, Can you shower me in some compliments right now? He said she is an incredibly attractive woman, <laughs> and in, and indeed the, the the teenage boy at the house where they hosted the the dinner party. He was swooning. Was he with love for you? But oh, far too cute. young for you. He was supposed to contribute to one of my yeah. anonymous confessions podcast episodes. Oh, was he? And then he got cold feet because of his immigration status. Oh, no. Yeah. Even no. though it was anonymous, I don't blame him, though. I told his him he could tell me off the record. His voice might be quite recognizable. Anyway, yeah. everybody falls in love with you. I think that's a very nice thing. I think though, it's my it? floor-length leather trench coat that I wear when I meet all of these people works wonders. Mm, but I really like the uh, boiler suit or whatever the it's jump called. Suit? The jumpsuit? The cat let's, woman? Let's not call it a cat suit. Let's call the, it a boiler suit. A boiler suit. I think that's a lot more interesting. Yeah. Yes. Well, I can't work out how you could get into it. It zips how up the it, back. Oh, does it? Terrible for peeing. Oh, oh please, let's not go into it. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, women don't no, pee. No, I forgot. women don't pee and they don't eat. No, they it's don't. And thing. they don't do anything except ingest air and act charming. Exactly. Um, but on the topic of hosting dinner parties in strangers' houses, I, I want to know more about your, um, I was going to call it an affinity, but I think it's more of an obsession with collecting people. Um, and again, in your own obituary, you write, Danet's largest collection, rather than of your art, was of people. The odder and more improbable, the better. Always one for extremes, Danet was excited to speak to anyone anywhere which could lead to inappropriate or even dangerous acquaintance. And it must be admitted that reactions to his own personality tended to be equally extreme, instantaneous dislike being quite as frequent as lifelong amity. This was a life haunted by its own inherent fictionality, a figure better suited to the pages of some minor novel of another era than to the brutal realities of everyday life in the 21st century. God, that's kind of good. It's good. It's really that's good. That's kind of good. It's really good. Did I write that? Yes, wow. you did. Fist bump. Oh, no, I don't do that. Right now. No, I'm not going to do a fist bump. I'm not going to put this down until you bump it. <sighs> it's... <laughs> That's terrible. I was going to say I, it's either that or I say I, the word I act, bussy uh, you again. You know, I could, don't bussy me. I can actually remember when the high five appeared for the first time. This is going to astonish Were you. Were you but like, it oh, was it's not, grotesque. It was not a standard part of the American life. And at some point, I think maybe the late 80s or the beginning of the 90s, suddenly people started putting their hands up in the air. And I had no idea what I was meant to do. So I would put my hand up in the air and we'd both be standing there with our hands raised. Just waving I had to just each waving other. at him. And I thought, what on earth is going on here? And Tell yet. me about your collection of humans. Well, it is true. I mean, I love people. My Welsh grandfather, Howell Davis, who is a science fiction writer, one of the few Welsh science fiction writers, in one of his books, he says, a Welshman, I could even try and do the Welsh accent, a Welshman cannot be in a room without a stranger, without wanting to know who they are and what they do. And it is very true of myself. I, I, I have to know. I mean, within limits. I, I mean, I am a lunatic um, because I will accost anybody on any street corner. But it is true that I'm usually accosting people who look like they're interesting, who look like they're attractive. It's not just anybody, all, which is probably wrong of me because there probably are fascinating people who look totally uninteresting and What schlubby. catches your eye? 
Well, the amazing thing nowadays, because everybody dresses so badly, especially men, in these appalling, uh, you know. Um, in fact, I was trying to think of the word for it the other day. Athleisure. It, well, it's yeah, I call it nothing wear. It's mm-hmm. just like nothingness yeah. of this bizarre, anonymous stuff, which doesn't even count as clothing, really, as you know. Isn't that interesting? In an age of overexposure, dressing in a nondescript way has become really trendy. I think that's kind of isn't, interesting. It is a very odd thing, it's isn't strange. it? That everything is about individuality and the individual brand, and yet everybody is dressed in the most unbelievably boring, schlubby yeah, it's really outfit, weird. as though everybody is worried that they might have attention drawn to themselves. So there are communities of properly dressed people who you can recognize each other now. And it's almost gone back to a 19th century thing that a gentleman, when he went somewhere, could see another gentleman. If you were in a train station in 1870 in Glasgow, you would see a fellow gentleman. You would, oh, hello, sir. And it's actually almost like that now. So I will be at an airport or something. Everyone in their oh in my god, that's the suits. worst. Oh, the worst. Uh, With those things around their necks, where they're going to the neck fall. pillows. Tragic. Oh my god, trying to fall asleep. And you'll see someone who looks like a normal person, a properly dressed person, and you can now just open a conversation with them on the basis that you're a proper person. Right. You go, hello, hello. And there's actually there's not even anything. And I think social media is partly actually, uh, to its credit, has made this possible that you can the notion that you can just interact with someone in a way is 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 a sort of uh 3d uh actualization of a sort of social media uh promiscuity social promiscuity that's really interesting but it's a funny i was in the airport i was at heathrow and there was brian ferry as you know Mm -hmm. of roxy music in the most impeccable suit and coat standing there in a sea of the worst-dressed people I've ever seen, and nobody could even notice him. It was as though he was invisible. And I, I was standing there looking at him, going, this fabulous man looking so fantastic. Can't these other people see that he looks totally different to them and that he's wearing a Savile Row suit mm-hmm. and a gentleman's uh, overcoat? But it's sort of completely oblivious. And I say, I am the only person who can see that there's Brian Ferry there. I think it's, it's, it's so you, bizarre. If you are somebody who values um, dressing well and uh, individually. It's not even dressing well. It's just dressing. Right. But I think I mean, that these people are so, undressed. Few, so few people do that anymore that if you don't do it, you don't look for it. It's. I, I feel like we all look for what it is that we are, right? Like mm. emotionally, but also physically. People who are really into sneakers, for example, are always looking at other people's sneakers. Yeah, I never true. look at people's sneakers. That's true. People who are I really into- I did have into... a pair of sneakers once, Nike Air Jordans. Oh. The original, now worth about $5,000. Did you sell them? No, they were stolen off me in <gasps> Johannesburg. Oh, mm. doomed. Gunpoint. Oh, that's bad. I know. That's really but bad. But they were quite dirty. I mean, I hadn't kept them in their original box, but they did have the little tag on them. That's the only pair I've ever had. Yeah. And I once had a T-shirt. I remember it at some point. And now you only have, um, what is that, Givenchy? This is Givenchy that a very lovely female friend of mine found 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 me with my initials A.D. Hubert de Givenchy. What could be better than that? To have my initials on my nipple. (laughs) I can actually play with my 
initials while playing with, with my nipple. The multitasking is just astounding. It's a double. It's a double. It's pleasure. really incredible. Um, but what was I going to say? Oh yeah, so I do no. So, but I will stop people. I mean, it doesn't. They don't have to be well dressed people, but I will stop well dressed people. But also junkies. I love junkies. No, I, love, see, I love junkies. Oh, when you see a really good heroin addict. Oh God, it's so. And good. I love it when they're bent over, like mm-hmm. when they're double that thing when they're like bent over in the street mm-hmm. and they're nodding out and they're about their head is just grazing the pavement. They're great. And I've often met amazing junkies. There was a really good one in London the other day who I think might have been a rock star at one point. Yeah. He looked fabulous. I mean, he looked as though he was just about to die. I I suppose I do actively collect people. No, you do collect people. And because I don't have a portable telephone... I have to write them down on little bits of paper. Yes. Uh, and, and so I have Or your, your Catholic... Um, my Catholic diary. Your Catholic my diary very that you're Catholic carrying around three for pounds Lent. fifty. I'm not carrying around for Lent. I'm carrying around for the year. £3.50 at Westminster Cathedral. The first half Marvelous. of it is filled with prayers. And I then the second half is Look filled it, with I the names it. and numbers of everybody Adrian encounters. And I then on top have. of it is a vaguely um, anarchist sticker. It's either anarchist or it's an <laughs> occult movement. And I'd have to put my, I don't know what it is. I peeled it off. I do actually pick up a lot of things on the street. I pick up a lot of people on the street, but I also pick up a lot of bits of paper and I love peeling off um, whatever they're called, those sticker things. I was just looking at Are you going to read a prayer? No, just because I was waiting in line at the post office. Mm -hmm. And so I had to find something to read until I found my Catholic diary. And I did find this, the penitential act. And striking their breast, they say, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Isn't that great? (laughs) Through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. I love that. I mean, that sums the whole thing up. Should we end there? I don't want to, but we could. No, let's end there. It's all my fault. Um, we can end whenever you want. But anyway, I, I mean, there are just so many fun people out there in the world. And, of course, New York, as you said before, the capital of culture or whatever, you do meet extraordinary people yeah. in this city. Yeah. And you meet these dazzling people. And sometimes I've had these occasions where it's just too much. Sometimes when I've gathered a group of people, every one of them is so fabulous. But and you I, do that on purpose. You curate I kind your of explode. I do curate, but then I kind of explode because I can't cope with it. Yeah. They are all half Lebanese, Chinese inventors of, um, you know, uh, rare podcasts or whatever. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, there, there, there are certain, I mean, the city has got unbelievable, I mean, London also. They're, yeah. They're just incredible Incredible. People. But I do wonder why you focus so much on other people and other people's stories when your own trajectory is so fascinating. Because I actually don't like talking, although it seems improbable having just been rambling on about myself for three or four hours here. I I actually am not interested in talking about myself. Why is that? I find it shaming. And maybe that's why it's good I didn't become a famous person because A... Maybe I'm not very good at acting, which is a great worry. But I I need to watch your show and be the judge yeah, of that. Where no, I mean, I'm good it? then. I'm yeah. good then, but I'm not so sure subsequently. Um, and you know what? I the worst moment in my life ever was I once did a karaoke thing, and I was doing uh, Sympathy for the Devil, mm-hmm. and I was so good, and everyone there was really impressed. And then I was so depressed for about a month afterwards because I suddenly thought I could have been a rock star which is even better than being an actor. Yeah, much. But then subsequently, thank God, it 
has been made clear that I absolutely can't sing or do anything like that. It was the miming along. I was good at doing the kind of and some of the right. some of the voice bits. But if that had been true, if I suddenly discovered that I actually had a voice and could sing, that would just be so awful that I'd lost out on being a rock star. Would have been just, I'd have to kill myself. But uh, um, yeah, and the other thing, a I'm not maybe not very good at being an actor. Maybe not very good at being an actor, and B, I do feel mortified with embarrassment watching myself mm. or actually hearing myself talk. So maybe that isn't. Maybe that's a sign that I shouldn't have been a, a famous person. Because it's kind thing. of. Whereas I think famous people maybe like seeing themselves. They do, even whereas if they I'm say they don't watch their work. No. They, it's tremendously self-indulgent. It's this. It's this really interesting kind of duality where only people who are morbidly insecure want to enter into a space where you need the first of all you need an audience to watch and to listen to you but you also need their approval you have to mm. be so uncomfortable with yourself but we all like being loved of don't course we? but That's there's but there's a for. difference between searching for love in like a, a in a domestic or a day-to-day -day way and and searching for love on this grand scale mm. and and having your own success be dependent on how much people love you it, it's it's interesting that only people who are really uncomfortable with themselves as individuals search for that, but they're also so self-interested and want to watch themselves and want to hear mm, themselves talk. I it's know. it's this really strange thing. I think about this in, in the context of myself all the time. Anyway, I love you in every way, Ali. What was your first impression of me when we met? I was dazzled by your charm, beauty, intelligence, humor. Oh, everything it's true and i think I, when you left with your team your gaggle of girls and i said i think that's probably the best girl i've met if i may say girl because you become a woman at 30 that's right isn't no, it? Not no, not no no not yet no not yet a woman not yet. Uh, and i said i think that's probably the best girl i've met in a thousand years thank I you think. yes Thank you. No, you're pretty good, Ali. No, coming good. from you, that's a tremendous yes. compliment, considering that you're... And I haven't been let down subsequently. Anybody who's met you has gasped in awe. And invited me to their Shabbat dinner. Yes, Shabbat <laughs> dinner's all over. Once again, my degenerate angels, I'm Ali Weiss, and this has been Tales of Taboo. Congratulations on surviving another trip into the underworld, and make sure to collect your souvenir photo on the way out. Just kidding. There is no souvenir photo, but there is merch on my website, www.allyweissworld.com. We've got the cutest sweatshirts and G-strings ready to cover your body in love. But if you're pinching your pennies but still want to support, the most helpful thing you can do is leave a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. I know all hosts ask for this and it's high key annoying, but in my case, the more reviews the show has, the easier it is for new listeners to find the show and become future anonymous contributors, which means more entertainment and powerful life lessons for you. Also, please tell a friend and an enemy about this episode if you think it will resonate with them, because word of mouth marketing means I won't have to do something that will embarrass you all, like participating in an Instagram giveaway. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed your hour with me, and I look so forward to seeing and hearing from you next week. Until then, be good. Follow Tales of Taboo on TikTok at Tales of Taboo and on Instagram at Tales of Taboo Pod. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Allie Weiss World. 
Tales of Taboo is part of the Eve Podcast Network and a Forever Dog production. Produced and narrated by Allie Weiss. Edited by Isabel McMahon. Executive produced by Mariah Nicholas. Intro by Chris Stephopoulos. Forever Dog Productions is Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Boehm.